That's like a thought. Okay, I'm going to ask everyone to find a seat. Year. Um, I'm Sayantani Dasgupta, one of the uh, faculty members here in the program um, in narrative medicine, the MS program in narrative medicine, uh, of which I'm always kind of cheering and uh, you know excitedly shouting about. So you know why make this month an exception? Hooray! This is our second uh, full year, or the, the second we're beginning our second year now of the MS program. And we have several of our master students in the room. Identify yourselves so we can cheer accordingly. So we're terribly excited here at the program in narrative medicine about that work. Um, but again, that is but one portion of what we do. Um, let me introduce uh, my other fellow faculty members in the program who are here. Um, Marsha Hurst is right there. Uh, the director of the program, Rita Sharon, is right here. I just saw her. And is there anybody else here? Nellie Pat. Nellie! Nellie Herman! <laughs> we have a winner. Is in the far, uh, in the end aisle there. Um, and there are several other faculty members who may be joining us. Pat Stanley, Craig Irvine, Laura Spiegel, none of whom I see. Um, so welcome um, to, uh, I hope and know, uh, what is going to be a really exciting and dynamic and challenging thought, a talk. The, the latest, um, you all know that I'm very fond of Chimamanda Adichie, and I like to say her quote about um, the danger of the singular story. Um, the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately is uh, the notion that social justice can be arrived at by changing the narrative, the force of simply changing the cultural narrative in uh, enacting social justice. Um, so in my mind, uh, this book that we're going to hear from tonight has um, a great deal to do with that notion. But it's not my job, it's an uh, enviable job, uh, to introduce tonight's speaker. Rather, it's to do the very important job of thanking everyone who has allowed this evening uh, to take place. Our wonderful friends here, Michael Alberto, who just left, um, who's waving at us. Uh, our friends here in the faculty club who allowed these evenings to happen. Sandra from the bookstore, who is also waving at us. Wave at us, Sandra. Uh, who will be selling um, books after the talk that we can purchase and also have signed by the speaker. So that's very exciting. Um, and I want to thank all of you because, uh, as I have been saying for the last two years every month, uh, the most important aspect of Narrative Medicine Rounds is this community building aspect, is the fact that connections happen here, ideas happen here, papers and co-written books and you know, co-written projects happen here. Um, and so I thank each and every one of you, those of you who come religiously every month and those of you who might be new to us. 
Um, welcome. Come and visit us the first Wednesday of every month. Find out more about our other programs. I also want to um, gesture to, kind of um, tell you openly, that the organization of rounds for the past couple of years has mostly... Um, kind of collaboratively, but mostly been um, in my hands, which is why I've been up here waxing on and on about the master's program. Um, but we're going to have a little bit of a shift. I think I in indicated that last month, um, but now the shift is uh, kind of official. Um, we are going to have our rounds for the rest of the year um, organized in a collaborative fashion, but the point people are going to be our program director, Dr. Rita Sharon. So if you have wonderful burning ideas, uh, tell Dr. Sharon, but also you can tell um, our wonderful administrator, Scott Alderman, who is here in the front row, and we'll wave. Um, so just to gesture to the fact that there's going to be a little bit of a shift in who's going to be up here, um, but of course, you know, we're a team and we're a faculty committee, and so uh, there are, you know, many other cooks in this broth. Um, so without further ado, let me introduce the person who will be doing the introducing, um, and that is Dr. Mindy Fulalove, our own Dr. Fulalove, who is a professor of psychiatry um, here at the medical institution and also of public health across the street at Mailman, and whose work um, in urban studies uh, at the intersection, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Fulalove, of urban studies and psychiatry, um, I think as well addresses this issue of changing the narrative um, and social justice. And so I'm thrilled to be introducing Dr. Mindy Fulalove, who will be introducing tonight's speaker. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's, a, it's really an honor to introduce the, tonight's speaker. Um, I just want to say that I trained in psychiatry at a place called New York Hospital Westchester Division which is in White Plains and was the last of the great, maybe not the last, but it was one of the last of the great analytic institutions. Uh, we actually treated people with cold bed sheets um, as opposed to medicine. Um, and um, it was white. Basically, the place was white, other than me and a couple of maids. And I left there my last year, and I went to work in the South Bronx. And the first day I was there, there a guy walked in the door who was, you know, he was black and he was hallucinating. I was a little surprised that he had schizophrenia, but I kept it to myself. Um, and the next day, another guy walked in, and he was black, and he was hallucinating. And, um, you know, the radio was telling him to do things which are classic signs of schizophrenia. And I was a little surprised, but I kept it to myself. And then the third day, another black guy walked in with schizophrenia. And I said, doggone it, black people get schizophrenia too. <laughs> My earlier experience had taught me that black people were spared that terrible disease. Um, so I'm pleased to learn from Jonathan Metzl, tonight's honored speaker, how black people came to have schizophrenia. <laughs> they, they didn't used to have it. Um, uh, Jonathan brings a, a stunning resume to us tonight. He's you know, a Stanford grad and obviously at the University of Michigan, these honored institutions. What's important about his work is that, as a physician and as a psychiatrist is that he also has a master's in poetry and a PhD in American studies. So he really, really works at this intersection having developed profound tools for doing so. It's not enough to be a psychiatrist and do this kind of work of digging into American culture, and hence the, the doctorate in American studies. Um, he is a professor of three things, psychiatry, African-American studies, and gender studies, 
and works as a clinician in, this, in the, both the clinic and the psych ER and also as a teacher for graduate and undergraduate students teaching about gender and health. Um, he's written a series of books, Prozac on the Couch, the one we're discussing tonight, and, is the, and has a, an edited book which is coming out in a flyer so that we can all get copies of it called Against Health, which has the subtitle How Health Became the New Morality. Um, so but what I want to say about this kind of work is that Dr. Roderick Wallace has said most uh, ingeniously, I think, that racism is really like HIV. And we all know that HIV is the cleverest virus that we've ever encountered and mutates all the time. So one of the problems people face who are trying to make a vaccine or make a drug or treat it is that by the time you're treating the, drug, the, the virus that you see before you, it's gone on to be something else. And sadly, it's mutating against all of the tools that we develop. So racism, he said, is this kind of an animal that we think we see racism but it mutates and becomes something different. And we have before us um, in this marvelous book uh, such a detailed, close, respectful analysis of racism, the mutating virus. I just want to read you one paragraph um, that I think captures this, this thing he saw change in front of his very eyes sitting there in the archives. Yet as later chapters detail 1960-era changes in hospital demographics, mental health policies, popular attitudes, national events, and a host of other variables altered the meaning of schizophrenia in profoundly political ways. Parents' patria gave way to police patria. Increasingly, biological and chemical definitions of mental illness made it ever more difficult for doctors and patients to recognize how clinical issues mirrored structural ones. The state classified fewer and fewer women as criminally insane and then shut the women's ward completely. Civil unrest filled the airwaves and the streets. Detroit burned, Ionia transformed. Mm. That's, that's really the, 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 the heart of this. And we can place this book besides numerous other recent books that have taken us into these moments in American history where racism was one thing, but it became another, it didn't disappear. And hence, he takes us really to the heart of, of our national disease of racism, um, which will mutate again and again and again. Um, and so when we are up against a clever virus, we must become clever multidisciplinary scholars. I introduce to you, Jonathan. Well, thank you so much. It's really such a great honor to be here. Uh, for personal and professional reasons, I have to say that was absolutely a wonderful introduction, and I was just sitting there thinking, just please keep talking, because that's <laughs> really absolutely wonderful, but also because there are so many old friends and colleagues in the room. My, my brother's an orthopedist here, and he walked me up to the room, and uh, it's been uh, really nice to see his progression through this institution. Of course, Rita and I go way back. In fact, we were just talking that I got my start when I, uh, you know, went back in the, some time ago at an ASBH conference, or it was society for whatever it was at that time, asking, like, can you make a career where you're combining medicine and the humanities together? And it really does take, I think, um, you know, really the, the advice that I got at that time of kind of become an expert in, in what you're talking about has really served me very well. So I'm very, very, very grateful. Um, 
Anyway, I'll be talking tonight about, about the, the, the research that I did for The Protest Psychosis, a book that came out about six or seven months ago and that has been kind of uh, working its way around, and it's taken me to very different areas. Um, but one of the conversations that I've been having around the book uh, has actually de dealt with some of the issues that we were talking about in, this, in the beginning and kind of in the introduction to the introduction here about the question of narrative and how is it that doctors, what is it that doctors should know in order to understand different kinds of different kinds of issues that face patients and that patients butt against in constructing their narratives of illness and health. And I took the liberty uh, of going through the Narrative Medicine website uh, and going through, and I think that it's you know been really useful for me because it's really, for me as somebody who works as a clinician and also as a cultural historian, <laughs> particularly useful to say, well, what is, what is the role of the doctor in constructing this narrative? And I think it's one of the issues that narrative medicine really plays, play, plays, is playing out in narrative medicine, which is on one hand, we want physicians who are, as the website says, as competent as they can possibly be, as competent as they can be in understanding the different cultural scripts, personal scripts, political scripts that patients come into the examination room with. But also, I think that that's that that narrative is either in support of, but sometimes in tension with this question of what are the bigger issues that shape the clinical interaction? What are the bigger social, political, contextual issues that maybe shape not just the patient's narrative, but also the ways that doctors listen and that doctors hear things? And I think that that's why this relationship really between, I really have to say I'm so supportive of this relationship between narrative medicine and social justice issues, because it really does, it's to me not a vote. And what drives me crazy sometimes is that it becomes like either you're narrative competent or you're, you study public health or something, and the way that these things are merging, that you have to pay attention to the narrative and the structure is something that I'm going to argue for over the course of the talk. Um, so with that as a bit of preamble, let me say that I came to my own narratives, and for people who have seen the book, I came to my own narratives um, about five or six years ago when I was doing a, a bit of research, looking really into the question. I was interested in the, in the history of the misdiagnosis or overdiagnosis of schizophrenia in African-American men. And I was looking around for an archive, and it turned out in, in Michigan, where I live, the, these archives were hard to come by, and I ended up finding an archive of a hospital called the Ionia State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Now, I'll be saying a bit more about this hospital toward the end of the talk. But for now, let me just say that this was a very large institution. Um, I get in trouble for saying it's in northern Michigan. What I mean is actually it's just north of where I live, um, about three hours. So it's about three hours, about two hours north of Detroit, um, two or three hours north of Detroit. And we, you know, right now, Ionia is a term that, I mean, it's a, has a mythological meaning, but in terms of the city itself, it's a kind of small, nondescript town right now. But if you would have said Ionia to somebody, even, even in New York or Los Angeles in the 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s, people really would have known what you were talking about because at that time it was one of the nation's most notorious mental asylums for the criminally insane, persons who were convicted of crimes but also found um, uh, somehow suffering from some form of mental illness. And I was the one of the, uh, well, the first person to get access to the files from this particular hospital. Now, it was enormous, as I'll kind of expand toward the end here, but it was a 450-acre facility, really was like a small town in and of itself. And as I started going through the charts from this particular hospital, was I, what I found, among other 
complicated and interesting narratives was an interesting narrative of a particular racial and gender transformation, particularly as it revolved around the question of schizophrenia itself. Uh, and basically, when I looked at charts from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, even the early 1950s, and I would pull charts, and we were pulling charts with the diagnosis, initially dementia precox, but then schizophrenia, and we looked at who was getting schizophrenia at the time. And what we found was that roughly eight or nine out of ten of the charts that we would find that were people with schizophrenia were persons categorized by the hospital census as what was called U.S. white, and about half of these patients were women. And the, the illnesses that they suffered from, the kind of schizophrenia and the kinds of crime that they ended up in Ionia for were things like she got verbose and embarrassed her husband in public. She did shoplifting, stuff like that. I know it is criminal, yeah. Um, <laughs> that you got more than the wet sheets at that time. Um, so uh, things like that, really crimes that were called violent at the time, like you know pushing somebody or something. It was, it was, I don't want to make it sound too quaint. There was real violence at the time, but it wasn't what we would think of now. All of a sudden, over the course really of a 10-year period between the 1940s and 1950s, you see a radical transformation. Well, first I'll just say fairly, in the hospital census itself, the hospital goes from being a hospital that's roughly 96% U.S. white to a hospital that, over about 15 years, becomes a hospital that's roughly 70% categorized as U.S. Negro uh, by the hospital census. And not surprisingly, over that time period, you see a new kind of schizophrenic subject emerge in the hospital. These all of a sudden are angry African-American men. They come from Detroit. They've participated in different forms of either violent crime or urban unrest, so things like the Detroit riots, uh, things like that. And they end up going through the criminal justice system and end up in, in the Ionia State Hospital diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so the question is, really the question that when I first started this to topic, did these men have schizophrenia? I mean, what, you, and, and what I found was actually, it was a, it's a yes or no question. It's, a yes or, it, it's not a yes or no question. And it's not a yes or no question for the very reasons that I was kind of leading to in my preamble, which is on one hand, you could say that given the information available to the doctors at the time, uh, that these men showed up at Ionia Hospital hallucinating, delusional, uh, paranoid, all the kind of things that we would classically diagnose schizophrenia with. But there was this much broader story about the ways that the system itself was socially producing schizophrenia in ways that caused these men to look schizophrenic by the definition itself. And so the story that I tell really is a resonance between that clinical moment and the larger structural history. And as I started to tell that story in the book, what I started to believe was that this incident, this incident of what was happening in this somewhat out-of-the-way hospital in Michigan led to a series of answers not just about what was happening tragically in the lives of these men in Ionia, but also about a series of broader questions that still play out in the present day about what happens at the nexus of race, mental illness, and really psychiatric diagnosis. And so I'll start, um, I'll, I'll start actually, um, that slide that I just skipped over was to say that there were strong narrative components, which I'll get to in a minute, about the patient's story. But let me start by saying that um, I just said that I thought that this project tapped into several key issues at the, at the present-day nexus of race and mental illness. And so let me say that I'm somebody who has a, a split appointment, a kind of schizophrenic appointment at the University of Michigan. Uh, and I'm in the psychiatry department on Mondays and part of Tuesdays. And if you come up to me on a Monday or a Tuesday and you say, what is schizophrenia? I will somewhat 
somewhat more complicated than what I'm presenting as kind of a straw man, admittedly, on this slide, tell you that schizophrenia is a mental illness that has symptoms such as delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, social withdrawal, and those symptoms result from a number of developmental and environmental factors, but underlying those is a biological substrate, very often, of some kind of biological disorder, and that can be some, oops, it can be, I don't know how that happens. Uh, Somebody just put the slideshow back up. That was the uh, Department of Psychiatry knowing that I was about to. Uh, <laughs> it was probably my chair at psychiatry, actually. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so thank you very much. Um, so uh, any, anyway, the, those, um, those factors are the result of some sort of biological aberration. And, that, and that, that answer will come from a movement within psychiatry called what's now or has been recently called biological psychiatry. And if you remember anything from this talk, know that one of the key numbers that's been kind of bandied around in the psychiatric literature for actually the past 30 or 40 years, if you track it back through psychiatric textbooks, and it's actually been revised slightly recently, is that because of biological factors and what psychiatric textbooks, even in the 80s, were calling genetics, that, psych that schizophrenia is an illness that because of these underlying biological forces, should occur in 1% of the world's population, regardless of race, gender, class, social location, that basically anywhere you go, one out of every 100 people, again, because of this underlying biological substrate, should suffer from an illness called schizophrenia. So that's the biological part of my talk. Uh, and let me say that, um, that uh, as somebody who's trained in, in both medicine and in kind of, you know, social, social history, the biological literature is often in tension with a series of social, we might call them perceptions, misperceptions, um, stigmatizations that impact not just the lives of people with schizophrenia, but the way we actually think about and diagnose and practice schizophrenia and the material reality of what it's like to live with schizophrenia. Uh, and I just want to mention two of these. We might call them stigmatizations or misperceptions. One is the so-called overdiagnosis literature. People might be familiar with this. But basic, this, basically, this literature says that since the first studies that kind of proved this in the mid-1960s, that there's been a steady stream of studies that have shown that for whatever reason, um, if you're a black man in the United States, you can throw that 1% number pretty much out the window, that African-American men are four, five, six, even seven times more likely to be overdiagnosed with schizophrenia and underdiagnosed with conditions such as anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression. And it's actually, I have to say, pretty depressing if you look at the literature because the, the first studies came out of an NIMH study in the mid-60s where they found that um, African-American men were, I think it was like seven times as likely to be overdiagnosed. The last study was in two, 2008, uh, and that was a study that found that African-American men were like five to six times as likely. So it's been an incredibly resistant finding, depending again on, on, on where you look. Um, so that would be point number one, where I feel like the social context and the biological literature might be in tension <laughs> to the, each other. Um, a second place where I think that stigmatizations or misperceptions might impact the lives of uh, 
people with schizophrenia is a related stigmatization, which is the assumption very prevalent in American culture that people with schizophrenia are unduly hostile or violent. Now, this is something that plays out across media, television shows. If anybody here has watched or been an extra in Law and Order, um, you know that that's a very, a, a very, um, a very prevalent uh, narrative. And basically, this idea is that um, they've done different research study. This study is actually by Watson, Corrigan, and Adati from Psychiatric Services from a couple years back. And what they did in this study was took police at police in-service training courses and gave them two sets of vignettes. They were pretty much identical. One set of vignettes say, Bob and Sam get in, get, Bob and Sam, two guys, get into a fight. Bob pushes Sam and tears his coat. You're called to the scene. What do you do? The second set of vignettes said, Bob and Sam get into a fight. Bob has schizophrenia. Bob pushes Sam and tears his coat. You're called to the scene. What do you do? So two identical vignettes, both of which don't say Bob has a, you know, Colt 45 in the one hand and a Mickey in the other and he's running down Main Street you know, shooting up it's what they called minimally intrusive vignettes, very low level violence. And all they did was change whether or not the perpetrator of the act did or didn't have schizophrenia. And what they found in this study was that simply by adding the word schizophrenia to the vignette, that the police officer's perception of violence went from roughly 15% to nearly 60%. Just by simply adding this word, when everything else remained exactly the same. Now, you might be thinking that this is something that is just happening with the police, and of course it has particular implications, but there have been a lot of studies, actually many of which have come from Columbia here, uh, Lincoln Feline and other people who have shown that actually these perceptions of people with schizophrenia as violent um, have played out, not just in the police rhetoric, but also in terms of American changing popular opinions. Now, I think these two kind of misperceptions are particularly important. First, let me say that there is no racial basis for schizophrenia. Maybe in 20 years somebody might disagree with me, or maybe now somebody might disagree with me, but I will have a discussion with them about that. <laughs> um, but um, the other issue is that um, certain symptoms of schizophrenia might uh, actually reduce threat of violence. And there's, a, a, for me, my favorite study about this actually was done by John Brecky and Kathy Prindle at the USC School of Social Work a couple of years ago. And what they found was they tracked actual police contacts in the Los Angeles area over a five-year period. And it turns out that in the, in the real world, if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia and you show up in a police report somehow, your chance is actually... Um, 65 to 130% greater that you're going to have the crap beaten out of you by someone else rather than that you're going to be the perpetrator of violence. And of course that makes sense because we think that these people might appear odd, socially withdrawn or something like that. So in this case, the stigma itself is actually indirect. It's directly opposite of what's happening in the real world. And so the other issue, as I said before, is that we've tried different kind of approaches to fix these issues of stigma and race-based misdiagnosis, training doctors in objective disease criteria, um, so-called the so-called cultural competency approach, which I know people uh, have kind of played with in, in interesting ways here at Columbia, um, public information campaigns by places like NAMI, and still these problems persist. And this is where I jump in as a cultural historian and say that even though these seem like very much present-day problems, that even though we want to kind of, fix, of course, fix them in the present day, that you can't actually understand what's going on if you don't see how these attitudes have really formed over time and in relation not just to clinical events, but also to social, political, and kind of cultural events. And that's what I do in the book, is tell the history of schizophrenia 
in relation to a particular history, really of civil rights and black power, and show how those two um, came about. And I, this slide might be a bit complicated, except to say that what, what I argue in the book is that the stigmatization of schizophrenia as a particularly violent and black disorder happened in relation to different cultural responses to black power that were happening in the 1960s and 1970s that were very obvious if you look at the literature of the 60s and 70s, but then become more invisible over the course of time. And so what we have in the present day are remnants of a moment of cultural history that don't quite make sense unless we track them back. And so that's what I do in the book. And the book has three interweaving narratives. One is the cultural context. Uh, and I'll be talking a bit about each of these over the rest of the talk here, which is the changing story of the changing meaning of schizophrenia. It turns out that schizophrenia wasn't always considered a, a disorder either of violence or of African-American men. In fact, we thought of schizophrenia very differently uh, in the time period of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, so what I do first is track a transformation in popular and medical assumptions and understandings about schizophrenia. Then I use the cultural history to tell the story about the charts, the chart story at the, at the Ionia Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And then I use that cultural history and clinical history to talk about how history helps us understand some of the present day issues that exist at the nexus, we might say, of clinical narrative and social justice. And so I'll just give a taste of, the, of those three narratives. And well, I'll start by jumping back to the 1920s, 30s, and 40s and say that if you went up to somebody in American society anywhere in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and you told them that schizophrenia was a disorder that was marked by a particular form of violence or hostility, or even that it was something that applied to populations of color, they would look at you like you were, you were the crazy one. Um, people actually thought about schizophrenia in very different ways. One way was that schizophrenia was very often thought of as a disorder of genius. There was an argument that was actually furthered by people in American psychiatry but replayed in popular books and articles that the great white novelists and poet uh, of our era all had a kind of leg up on their other kind of more banal, unafflicted competition because they had this disorder called schizophrenia. Now, we often think about bipolar disorder in this way in the present day because of Kay Jameson and other people, but it's important to note that bipolar disorder was a tiny little category at the time. In fact, there weren't many people diagnosed with it. Schizophrenia was this very large category, and it certainly incorporated the, the creative. This is an article from the New York Times um, from 1935, and it talks about how psychiatrists basically argued that the great novelists and poets all had schizophrenia and they had a particular symptom, whip this out at a cocktail party, <laughs> called grandiloquence, maybe an important narrative term. It basically means the propensity toward flowery prose. Um, so these guys all had this particular symptom called grandiloquence, which, which helped them kind of tell, you know, present their ideas in flowering ways. Uh, dementia precox was the earlier term, and people argued dementia precox very frequently results from conditions found in the sensitive, seclusive position, person with few friends who's been the model of behavior in childhood, so again, very different from the present day. 
Also during the 1920s to the 1950s, there were a host of articles in popular magazines like Collier's that basically asked people to open their homes to white people with schizophrenia. So it would ask people to open your doors to people with schizophrenia, either as boarders or, or to share meals with them. During this time, there were also very famous what were called schizophrenic biographies, mostly psychiatrists from the psychoanalytic wing of American psychiatry at the time would write stories of famous schizophrenic persons from recorded time. And of course, these were people who were, you know, schizophrenic because of their creativity or their position. And the two most kind of popular subjects of these narratives, one was T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, whose schizophrenia caused him to either be really depressed and sit at home and be bummed out and watch a lot of cable television, uh, or else jump up and take these spontaneous trips and travel the world. And the other was Mary Todd Lincoln, who again would sit and cry and be very sad and pouty, and then all of a sudden would jump up and go on these spending sprees and spend all of Abe's money. Now, um, if you read the biographies of Abe Lincoln, you know that now we know that's because Abe was uh, stepping out on her in many different kind of ways at the time. Um, but at the time, this was held to be a, a, a case of schizophrenia. Um, schizophrenia also was a very common trope in women's magazines at the time, and so magazines like Better Homes and Gardens and Ladies Home Journal would basically say that there's a split, and schizophrenia literally means split mind, and they would say there's a split in the minds of we, American women of the United States, because we are split because we have to make lunch for our children and make a nice home and be a good wife, and it's causing us all to become schizophrenic. Now, this particular narrative reached, reached its high point in the 1948 film The Snake Pit, which was based on the Mary Jane Ward book of, uh, from 1946, uh, produced by a man named Anatole Litvak. Anybody here seen this film by any chance? So for those of you who haven't, I'm going to, uh, with apologies, ruin it for you. Um, this was a, a film about a woman uh, na uh, 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 played by Olivia de Havilland, um, who basically had led a successful career as a journalist. She was doing, doing totally fine on her own, you know, had this career, was going to work, was totally set and solid. And then this guy starts wooing her, and he comes around again and again and again. And for the first, like, four or five times, she's like, you know, dude, forget it. And then she gives in, and they get married. And three days in, after her marriage, she has a psychotic episode, which is manifest by, among other things, her inability to recognize her husband. So the guy comes home, and she freaks out, and she's like, I don't know who you are, which of course means that she has schizophrenia. They cart her off to a psychiatric hospital, and then they do a series of psychoanalytic and other types of treatments. They stick her in a very cold jacuzzi. They kind of throw her around a little bit, but they also do intense psychoanalysis. And about every 20 minutes in the film, they bring the husband back in, and they, are, and they say, who is this man? Do you know who this is? And she's like, dude, I got no, <laughs> I got no idea. Uh, then she has a big breakthrough in psychoanalysis, and toward the very end, she realizes... I apologize. Everybody should see this movie. It's actually a really brilliant, complex movie. She realizes it's all about her father. <laughs> Big shocker there. Um, they bring the husband back in. She's like, darling, I love you. They embrace, and they go off into kind of suburban reproductive bliss or whatever happens <laughs> in the 1940s. So I'm making slight light of this, obviously. And I will say that actually The Snake Pit was a very important film at the time because there weren't a lot of films being made about either mental illness or particularly state institutions. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, this film adhered to a very 
it was pathbreaking in some ways, but adhered to a strict norm that coded mental illness and schizophrenia in particular as a disorder of white maternity. Now, this theme also played out in early pharmaceutical advertisements. So if you look at early, early ads for pre-antipsychotic medication medications from the American Journal of Psychiatry. You can see that schizophrenia is also coded as an illness that's helped by drugs, like drugs we now use for high blood pressure, that help these women kind of suture away their symptoms with the help of antipsychotic medications. Now, let me be clear that in no way, in no way am I saying that all persons who suffered from an illness called schizophrenia during the 1920s to the 1950s were members of a category called white, and in fact, there were entire so-called Southern Negro hospitals where schizophrenia really was the only diagnosis given to every single person in the entire hospital. Um, and we just did a, a session on this at the, at the Carter Center. People are starting to work on these archives. Um, what I am saying is that you wouldn't know that if you looked at American popular culture at the time, where schizophrenia really was coded as an illness of us, of the white mainstream, in ways that encouraged identification with particular groups of people and rendered other groups of people as invisible. So everything I've told you pretty much changes in a very short period of time, really between the 1950s and the early 1960s, where schizophrenia all of a sudden becomes coded not as a disorder of us, but in many circles of American society as a, as a disorder of them. Um, this is actually an image from maybe the next film, if we ever do I'm here for the year, so we could do a psychosis at the cinema movie series or something like that. And the next film uh, would be um, a film, a 1963 Samuel Fuller B-movie classic called Shock Corridor. Anyone here seen this film by any chance? It's, it's, a, it's great. Watch it not just for the Trapped on the Nymph Award scene, which is probably why a lot of people uh, in high school at the time watched it or something like that, but this is also an important film that is coded as, that was an inside joke to myself, um, uh, 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 coded at, um, as, the, as the kind of follow-up film to, to The Snake Pit. And this is a film about a psychiatric ward, but in this film it's a men's ward, a newspaper reporter is put on, onto the ward to help solve a crime, and he encounters different kinds of psychiatric characters, but the key scene in the movie is that he encounters the, the person with schizophrenia, and lo and behold, it's not uh, Olivia de Havilland. Um, it's a man uh, called Trent, who's played by an actor named Harry Rhodes, who actually had led a very normal life, the, the, the character. He was a model student. He had actually been at the top of his class. And then he started participating in civil rights protests. He started going to meetings, started going to groups, and he became a desegregation protester. He became somebody who was actively trying to desegregate schools in Arkansas. And actually participating in civil rights and the pressures of it and the kind of psychological impact of it actually led him to develop a split mind. And not only that, he actually becomes a racist. And so this guy is the schizophrenic character, and he's schizophrenic because he participated in civil rights. And not only that, he becomes a violent character. And so in really the key kind of denouement scene of the film, he starts a race riot on the ward. And this is very telling because it, I think for me, signals this really important transformation in the race and gender and also the ideology, the causality of schizophrenia itself across a wide array of American culture. Now, also in the 1960s, you start to see FBI 10 most wanted lists show up across different kind of venues. Um, and lo and behold, you see new schizophrenic characters playing out. All of a sudden in the 60s, you see these angry black male schizophrenics who are on the loose. 
Uh, also in the 1960s, very importantly for the research I'm doing now, you also see a new kind of study in psychiatric literature. Prior to the 1960s, with few exceptions, a lot of the research on schizophrenia had been done on white-only segregated wards. All of a sudden, hospital wards start to become desegregated in the 60s, and you see these new kinds of comparison studies that basically um, study hallucinations and delusions or whatever in white and negro schizophrenics. So people are saying, well, this group has schizophrenia and this group has schizophrenia, but it doesn't really look like the same illness to us, so let's do a study. And often what these studies would find was that the white form of the illness was the intellectual decline, whereas the black form was the kind of bodily, angry, hostile form. And so the question I ask in my research is, what was going on in the 1960s? Why did these assumptions... You can please take my place, yeah. Um, no problem. Uh, why did these assumptions... Uh, and if it's hard to see, may, let me know if it's hard to see, because I can read out any of the text on here. Um, why did these assumptions change in such a short and such a quick period of time? Now, in the book, I give three reasons for why I think that beliefs about the volatility, race, and gender of schizophrenia changed. I'm just going to mention two very quickly and then spend a bit of time, given the context of, uh, you know, uh, the clinical context, spend a bit more time on the third before concluding. The one that I don't really have time to go into today is that this idea of a split mind uh, as a kind of clinical pathology became a very potent metaphor in American popular culture for talking about the racial tensions of a racially split country. And so, in a way, people talked about schizophrenia in relation to desegregation very, very often. Here's an article uh, from the New York Times from the mid-60s, and it's an article about desegregation. And this is very uh, representative. They say, uh, states, towns, and even individuals seem torn by a sort of racial schizophrenia in which Negro, Negro equality is simultaneously accepted and rejected. This idea that basically the tensions of, a, of not just a split mind, but a split mind where symptoms are caused when the split occurs maps onto this idea of what happens when a racially split country that maybe had known its place in the past all of a sudden starts to mix. So point number one is that schizophrenia becomes a particular metaphor in American culture for talking about desegregation. Point two, which I could give a whole other maybe lecture or year-long seminar on, is that schizophrenia also becomes a very potent metaphor, not just in white mainstream society, but also in the rhetoric of civil rights, black power, Nation of Islam, other kind of venues itself. And this is actually a debate that's, that represents the split within the movement itself as it kind of weighs the implications of violence itself. This is, on one hand, a quote from Martin Luther King's last speech at the Ebenezer Baptist Church, his unfulfilled dream speech. And he says, there's a civil war going on. And what he means is actually there's a civil war going on in the black mind. That basically, the black mind is torn in two opposite directions. Um, there's a schizophrenia, the psychologist or psychiatrist would call it, going on within all of us. And in all of us, there are times that all of us know somehow that there is a Mr. Hyde and a Dr. Jekyll in us. And he's actually mentioned this similar kind of format in at least 12 other sermons and writings that I've found. And what he's basically saying is we have these two parts of our mind. 
the violent part and the nonviolent part. And our choice is, what are we going to choose? That's our ethical decision. And he, of course, urged the path of nonviolent resistance. And what I argue in the book is that it's actually a mistake to read this as King appropriating psychiatry. Actually, King is referencing a much earlier tradition in black philosophical thought going back to Du Bois's notion of double consciousness and the kind of split that's needed to function in racist societies. And this courses through the work of Fanon and other people. So in a way, this isn't so much psychiatry being appropriated by King. It's really that Du Bois was actually writing way before psychiatry. So maybe you know this thought influenced psychiatry. You know. Um, on the other hand, schizophrenia was also a very potent metaphor in the writings and the musings of people like Malcolm X, well, Rat Brown, Stokely Carmichael. Whoop. I don't know. There's the chair of my psychiatry department again. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> it's good you're the fixer. <laughs> um, um, within the writings of, of the Black Power Movement itself. Uh, and so um, really uh, what you see here is people argue this is not that we're going to kind of choose the path of, of nonviolent resistance. In fact, there is schizophrenia, but either it's being caused by living in a racist society itself or there is an insanity, and the insanity is not so much in the black mind, it's in the white civilization and in, in society itself. So there really was a relocation of the pathology itself. Now, this is not just happenstance. Um, if anybody's interested, please email me. I've got the FBI psychological profiles of Malcolm X, most notably, but also Robert Williams, the kind of leader of the NAACP in the South. And these men actually were being diagnosed with schizophrenia by FBI psychological profilers. And Williams, for example, had these famous FBI posters where it said angry black schizo angry negro schizophrenic on the loose as these wanted posters so it wasn't just happenstance that they were talking about schizophrenia but for them it was a very different kind of set of assumptions um, the third narrative that I talk about in my book as influencing this transformation has to do with the relationship between what I was just talking about which is a certain activist wing in the kind of latter parts of the civil rights era that was urging a particular protest against psychiatry, against mainstream society in order to bring about different forms of cultural change, and the writings of psychiatric professional authors who are writing in mainstream psychiatric journals. So in the, po in the political sphere, you had people arguing that we should start a new republic of new Africa. This is actually arguments I'm very sympathetic to because they were coming uh, from near Detroit where I live, but other people were arguing about the kind of the importance of violence in bringing about social change. And when you look at writings of, this, of the era, you see that this language was very directly co-opted and pathologized and depoliticized by psychiatric authors. And the key example that I talk about in my book is an article uh, and a series of articles written in the Archives of General Psychiatry by two authors, Bromberg and Simon, who actually were writing in New York. They were New York area psychiatrists who noted that there were new kinds of African-American patients who were being brought into the psychiatric wards, into the psychiatric emergency rooms at the time. These were all men who um, had participated in civil rights protests. They came in having changed their names to Islamic names. They came in with the physical sign of the clenched fist. And if I can do this, I'll just read to you that what they wrote was, the particular symptomatology we have observed for which the term protest psychosis is suggested, is influenced by social pressures, the civil rights movement, dips into religious doctrine, 
the black Muslim group, is guided in content by African subcultural ideologies and is colored by a denial of Caucasian values and hostility thereto, this protest psychosis is virtually a repudiation of white civilization. So basically what they're saying is that there's this new form of insanity that's caused by participating in civil rights uh, and that this is manifest by anger at white society. And what happens is you get these kind of delusional symptoms, part of which are kind of violent, but also you, rep- you, you project your anger onto white civilization itself. Now, if you don't believe me that this is representative, please buy one of those lovely books there uh, toward the end. And I'll just tell you that there are a, a, a real corpus of literature at the time that's making similar kinds of arguments. People like Pearson West were basically arguing that if you even were participating in a sit-in and you were African-American, um, that you were more likely to, to uh, develop what they were calling hostility variables. Uh, people like Raskin, Cook, and Herman Felt, said that if you were black and you only thought that your civil rights were being violated, you were more likely to become hostile at the time. So a growing corpus of this. Um, as this is happening, there's another narrative happening in psychiatric journals, and that's the narrative of the pharmaceutical advertisements. Now, you'll recall that before I showed you that um, the kind of 1950s era ads showed these women kind of peacefully doing their like sew by numbers or whatever that thing was. Um, all of a sudden in the 1960s, there are advertisements for new antipsychotics. And we're talking, as my grandmother would say, the real Kenahara antipsychotics here, Stelazine, Thorazine, Haldol, things like that. And as this happens, you see ads that directly replay the Bromberg and Simon theme. So all of a sudden, ads that are directly replaying African masks and African themes. There are also ads for students of anthropology that actually call on terminology that has been, I think, directly related to the history of racism in America, uh, i.e. primitive, and so basically making these comparisons between the primitive and the normal. And the, book, and the ad that I talk about the most in my book is an ad for Haldol that shows up actually in the direct aftermath of the Detroit riots. This is an ad that, again, all these ads appeared in the American Journal of Psychiatry and Archives of General Psychiatry, two of the leading psychiatric journals uh, in, in, the, in the country. And um, I don't know if this ad needs much uh, in the way of narrative, but I will say that you know certain things jump out as me as somebody who's reading this ad. Um, this is an ad that's not in a hospital setting. It doesn't really show up on the slide, but it's in a glowing kind of orange urban scene, which would not have been ironic considering that Watts and Detroit and Newark and all these riots had just happened right before this ad showed up. It's also somebody who's not dressed in hospital garb. Um, not ironically, this person looks an awful lot like um, the godfather of Soul, James Brown. Uh, and that's not a surprise, I don't think, because like Malcolm X, James Brown also, especially after uh, King's assassination, was somebody who was on the FBI target list and was being very, watched very closely. This is somebody who has a, a, a clenched fist. It's not the solidarity clenched fist of black power. Uh, black power. It's the inverted clenched fist, and basically what he's saying is that this is a particular threat to the physician viewer, the physician reader of this ad, and then the text really tells the story, hostile and belligerent cooperation, social cooperation, uh, as well as clinical cooperation begin with Haldol. So in a way, positing this antipsychotic medication as a treatment both for clinical and for social pathologies. Now, there's a last piece of the story, which is that 
beneath the level of the obvious representations of what I was just showing you, the research that I'm doing now also looks at um, what I hold to be the unintended impact of changes in psychiatric diagnosis. They were also happening in the 1960s. And the key piece of information here is that also in 1968, as all this stuff is happening in society, um, also in 1968, we changed the definition of schizophrenia. If you look at the DSM-1, and people here who know psychiatry, DSM is like the Bible that we diagnose by and, and other things. Uh, you know, uh, um, and the DSM-1 came out in 1952, and it defined schizophrenia as what was called a schizophrenic reaction. It was a personality reaction manifest by things like confusion, religiosity, different personality factors. All of a sudden, the DSM-2 comes out in 1968, and lo and behold, there's new terminology, particularly in this paranoid subgroup of schizophrenia, that talks about hostile and aggressive attitude and projection. And then the text, actually, it had been written in gender-neutral terms. It's written in the universal male third-person pronoun in 68, and it says, the patient's attitude is frequently hostile and aggressive, the patient uses the mechanism of projection, which ascribes to others characteristics he cannot accept in himself. Now, of course, you'll recognize that because that's exactly the same language that they were using in the protest psychosis article, basically saying they're, blam they're blaming Whitey for their problems in a certain kind of way. And so it was very unfortunate. I'll just say, uh, you know, as a slight softball, I'd say that it was very unfortunate that this terminology came out at the time. And the research we're actually doing now looks at the ways in which those particular terms showed up in the era around the DSM-2. We're actually doing an extensive research project on psychiatric journal articles that mention case studies. And what we found was that between 1960 and 1978, there's growing use of those terms, anger, hostility, projection, criminality. These are two, two samples. This sample are just general articles about schizophrenia that don't mention race. And the, um, the test articles, these ones, um, uh, Basically, aggression, hostility were overwhelmingly overused in case studies in psychiatric journals in, in cases where um, the, the person was described as being Negro, colored, whatever, the, that terminology. So in a way, this became a coded word, at least in the mid-1960s, for talking about race under the guise of talking about mental illness. Now, I'll just say this slide, actually, we just did this morning. I'm working with a great data person in Michigan, and what we're finding is actually those terms like anger, hostility, projection, initially were applied to black subjects in psychiatric literature, but between 1969 and 80, they actually go up in over the time in all articles about schizophrenia. So initially, this is a racialized metaphor that then attack, attaches not to the category of black, but to the category of schizophrenia. And what we're arguing is that that, that stigma I was talking about, about violence, has this racial under, underpinning, but then broadened or whatever the term would be to talk about the category of schizophrenia itself. So this is, as of today, new, new data. Um, the last piece I'll talk about, talk about about getting to my conclusion about 10 more minutes, okay, um, is um, getting back to the story of Ionia. Now, as I mentioned, Ionia is a town that uh, people like to talk about. Mich Anybody here from Michigan? Yay. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> as a kind of oven mitt, and Ionia's kind of up there near the kind of fourth metacarpal, uh, and uh, Ionia was a, a, a large, large, large kind of city unto itself, uh, a, a, a census of three, four, five thousand in the mid, uh, 19, by the mid-1950s, uh, um, 400 acres of kind of farmland where the 
kind of insane persons would go work off their insanity by doing gardening chores and working with the you know, swine and the cows and because kind of a Weberian summer camp. And the rest were these kind of large, threatening, particular kinds of buildings that did not seem incredibly fun. Um, now, again, as I mentioned in the beginning here, Ionia was a largely, largely white institution that was also about 40% women at the time. And if you look at the charts at the time, you'll see that there were very different rhetorics about schizophrenia. So I've looked through the newspapers of the town and the charts. There was a lot of talk about the arts and crafts made by Ionia's schizophrenic women patients. So they would actually take these, these women to the state fair every year, and people would kind of be clamoring for their arts and crafts. Um, every year, there would actually be a float in the Michigan State Fair Parade. This is 1933, where Ionia's schizophrenic women would kind of sit there and wave to people down Main Street, kind of uh, showing. I would just say that if we had a float from a state hospital in the present day, like in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, you know, it probably wouldn't, there'd probably be like, you know, barbed wire or something around it, something like that. So anyway, a very different relationship between the environment, between the environment and the patient. All of a sudden, over the late, starting in the late 1950s, you see changes in hospital architecture, the kind of one foo over the cuckoo's nest kind of uh, architecture plays out. And as this happens, you see uh, kind of hand in hand with that changes in the demographic, increasing numbers of African-American men brought up from Detroit for very different reasons. And what we found is that as that happens, there are increasing concerns about the propensity, it wasn't like come build a float, float down Main Street kind of thing. It was these people might escape into the environment. And so you see moats and barbed wire fences that go up around. And you know where this story is going, which is that in 1978, the Ionia State Hospital literally overnight becomes the Riverside Correctional Facility, a medium security prison uh, in, in Ionia that actually sits to this day on the same ground. And toward the end of the book, I actually had the really good fortune. I was very grateful to the the state of Michigan for letting me actually, they gave me 10 chaperone visits of the hospital itself and really let me, with people kind of helping me out, talk to people, tour a lot of the ground and stuff like that. And what was really interesting for me was I'd already been studying the hospital for about four and a half years at that point. And then they let me in and I thought like everything's going to look totally different. This is going to be a totally different experience. And I walked in and it really was like walking back in time Many of the buildings were still up. The, war, the kind of yard was still up. You know, all of these kind of old structures were up. There was just like a lot, lot, lot more ri uh, ribbon wire, which, <laughs> you know, somebody's, you know, sister worked at the ribbon wire factory or something. Um, but, um, but the structure itself was the same, and I kept walking around and saying, this is amazing. This is exactly where, like, this happened and that happened. And people would look at me like, what are you talking about, man? Like, we have no idea. We have no idea what you're talking about. They were, like, surprised to hear that, that, that this site had actually been a hospital itself. And for me, this was important because this metaphor of a hospital that facility that sits on the same grounds and looks and, to me, feels, and, only, and not only that, acts the same way. And I mean, when I say that it acts the same way, I mean that by the time Ionia closed, it was about 70%, 75% African-American but the entire town of Ionia itself is an incredibly white town. Uh, and it's actually, I talk about this in the book, it's actually kind of ironic. But if you go onto the town website and uh, you read about the, you know, what they're promoting, they say, Ionia is a town noted for its cultural diversity. 40% of our population is African-American, <laughs> da, da 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 And then you walk around the town and it's like super, 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 like to say it's a white town is like, 
to say it's a white town, uh, which is really what it is. Um, uh, and you just wonder, like, where, you know, where, where is everybody? Are they, did everybody, like, go to Denny's or something like that? But actually what it is is that, of course, they count the prison population in the census. And so there is this structure, this racialized structure, that functions in the context of this white thing. And so, in a way, the prison does very much the same function. It functions the same way as the hospital used to in that regard. It's a largely African-American facility in the context of a very white area of rural Michigan. And so the prison didn't just look like the hospital. It actually, in this sense, functioned like the hospital. But there was all of this amnesia around it, where people were saying, what is it? And to me, that became a metaphor for actually talking about the stigma questions that I started off talking about in the beginning, which is we have these structures that act like the past. They, in fact, make total sense if you that kind of read through the past, but we don't exactly know why it is that they got that way, and it's part because this particularly charged racial history is very good at erasing its origins, as at, at kind of depoliticizing itself from, it, from its social origins. And I'll just say before I get to the conclusion that we're doing similar research and did similar research for the book with the hospital charts, and we found a very similar narrative in the, in the hospital charts themselves where those DSM-2 terms, aggression, hostility, projection, were all overwhelmingly used to talk about African-American subjects. But I will say that, getting back to the point that I was just making, that the kind of take-home point for the project for me, in terms of being a practicing psychiatrist and somebody who cares very deeply about psychiatric stigma, is that I came to see psychiatric stigma as in part based in our attitudes in the present day, but also something that's very much embedded in this discourse of remnants, remnants that help shape what's happening in the present day, but that are kind of invisible to us. And so that's why I think cultural history is important. And I just want to mention a couple examples of that. And one I'll throw out really as a question because I struggle with this, which is that in all of the articles like the one I started with where you say we looked at police attitudes and police were overwhelmingly more likely to, you know, Overdiagnose, say schizophrenia was a violent disorder, they all say, and what we do for this, what we do in response to this, is we teach police or whoever that schizophrenia really is a biological medical disorder like diabetes or hypertension, and we just teach them, importantly, very importantly, that it's a medical disorder so they won't stigmatize it as much. And in part, that's very important, but in terms of the history I'm telling, that only tells half the story. That what I'm arguing is actually the stigma itself is racialized, and that um, in a way to just address the medical stigma doesn't address this whole other question. And so I really I think about this, which is how might that impact our anti-stigma interventions um, in, in the present day? And I'll just throw that out as a question. The second um, is that I still feel that Schizophrenia also functions as a, a protest metaphor in important ways. It's not just a psychiatric diagnosis. It's also in line with the way it was being used in 1968 by Greer and Cobbs in the book Black Rage and other kind of places as a metaphor for fighting back or coping or dealing with the pressures of living in a white society. Uh, and the way, actually, we, we, I get at this in the book and the way I'm actually working with a med student at, at Duke now, we're doing a kind of follow-up study, um, is to look at the ways in which psychiatric terms get co-opted in American popular music. And so there are these great databases that we're looking at where you can just search. It's like Medline or something. You can actually better than Medline sometimes. Um, where you can actually just do a text search of um, terms that appear, and they'll give you every song that's ever been written. And so it's like leoslyrics.com and songlyrics.com, and you know it's not scientific, but it is really useful. And so you type in the words depression, depressed, and you get artists like 
America, Styx, Celine Dion, Joni Mitchell, The Eagles, Ani DeFranco. Um, <laughs> and a lot of times these artists will talk about depression as being a kind of mood disorder that takes you out of circulation. So people who know like those said, like, you know, I set my sights on Monday and I got so darn depressed. You know, like, um, you know, you're just like sad, you're morose. If you type in the word schizophrenia or schizophrenic, you see a radical change, not only in the artists themselves, but also in the ways schizophrenia or schizophrenic is used. And I say this with profound apologies to Tupac, whose words should never appear on a PowerPoint slide or an academic <laughs> lecture. Um, but I will say that you see rappers and hip-hop artists who overwhelmingly are the people who are claiming schizophrenia. And in this case, they're not saying like, I'm sad or I'm morose. They're basically claiming schizophrenic identity. They're saying, I'm schizophrenic. And what that means is I'm potentially violent and you better get out of my way because I'm a particular threat to other rappers, to the police, to other kinds of people. And so in a way, what they're claiming is the very thing that was being pathologized by that article, The Protest Psychosis, in the 60s, that schizophrenia is a threat of violence. Now, I don't think that what they're saying is we rappers have dopamine imbalances in our brain and we need uh, antipsychotic medication. What I think they're showing is that this, this notion of schizophrenia as a protest trope and this idea of a split mind that courses through a very different trajectory than the psychiatric one still functions in ways that are of, to me, tremendous use to understanding what you know the multiple meanings of mental illness part that are formed in, in psychiatry, but other parts that really are coming from culture, society, philosophy, um, rejections of medicine. And I think it's important to know all of that stuff if you really want to get at being competent and understanding the meanings of illness for particular patients. Um, I won't say too much about A Beautiful Mind. Uh, that might be the last film in our particular uh, um, um, film series, um, except to say that, that fil the film, and I invite anybody to read the book, it's actually a, a la it's very, it's a much different than the than the movie itself. But um, the film *Beautiful Mind* on one hand was an incredibly, incredibly important film, like *Snake Pit*. Not many people talking about schizophrenia in popular culture, telling a story about the debilitating impact of schizophrenia. But it's also a film that, at least in the class I teach on race and stigma, we watch with attention to race. And it's also a film that's imbued with a particular form of nostalgia for a particular painting of America. Um, and I'll, I'll say that if you don't believe me, watch the film and watch it particularly for people of color. And you notice that they don't show up until four minutes and 19 seconds to go in the film itself. There's a scene in the, in the faculty club where, I'm going to ruin this one for you too, but Nash wins the Nobel Prize. And there's a professor of color who gives a pen to Nash and says the only two words spoken by a person of color in the film, congratulations, John. But other than that, this is a film that's nostalgic, at least in the way Ron Howard made it, for that version of schizophrenia that I talked about a, a while ago, this idea of white male genius. And it faces other stories that I think could and should be told about schizophrenia that are similar stories, but ones that are told in relation to race. I love this author, Victor Lavelle, who's an African-American man who himself was, I, I think, misdiagnosed with schizophrenia and writes these hilarious stories about what it man means to always be thought of as crazy when really you're just thinking a, a particularly different way. But, I mean, I, I, it's scary to think what that would look like as a Ron Howard film, but I think it would make a, a very good film. Um, I'll just say two things in conclusion. Um, one is about this question of cultural competency and 
and even you know, possibly narrative competency. And I will say that I really like the turn that's been going on. On one hand, it's very important, incredibly important, to talk about what doctors and patients talk about. That in a way, for too long, we didn't pay attention to that. Um, um, but I think in the, in the question of race, sometimes, you know, I, I, I'll be honest, I can be kind of critical sometimes of the way that cultural competency plays out. Um, because it implies, on one hand, that doctors can become competent in other cultures, but also that race itself is something that's negotiated through the volitional conversation of doctors and patients. And what I argue in the book is actually that what that leaves out is the story I tell in this book, which is that there's a third race that functions in the exam room. And that's actually the race of the diagnosis. And it's kind of structurally imbued relationship to racial politics. And so what I argue in the book is that at the same time that we, if we can become culturally competent, um, and culturally um, humble, uh, which I think is a very important term, we should also become structurally competent. Mm -hmm. And we should teach doctors about the ways in which structural imbalances, healthcare delivery systems, other larger forces impact the conversation as much as the sympathies of particular <coughs> doctors and patients. And the final point I'll say is that this is also a story about the criminalization of mental illness. If you'd gone up to somebody in the 20s, 30s, or 40s and said, we put our people with schizophrenia in jail. They would look at you like you were crazy. Now, I'm not at all nostalgic for life in an asylum. Um, I don't think it was like all that great. But I will say that reading through a lot of asylum memoirs, I will say that it's, it was interesting to me, maybe because of a particular idea of rehabilitation at the time, that there was at least a particular social contract in terms of how we take care of and how we understand people. So people in asylums were also, I mean, definitely they were warehouse, and I'm not ever idealizing this, but they were seen as truly wards of the state uh, in particular ways or private wards. And so there were, you know, teach them how to play music, teach them how to dance, teach them how to make things, teach them how to become functional members of society in a way that I think at least... In, in its veneer said, you can re-enter a particular society. It was a particular kind of social contract. In the present day, I would just say that that contract has been broken in important ways. If you look just by the numbers according to Human Rights Watch, if you're diagnosed with schizophrenia and you're in an, a state institution, it's about four or five to one more likely that you're going to be in a prison than in a psychiatric hospital. And of course, there are many economic, social, historical reasons why that is. But from the story I'm telling, it's also the result of a particular transformation in which schizophrenia morphed from an illness of us to an illness of them, and from an illness of docility to one of a particularly threatening form of hostility. Thank you. I can hear everything. So. so if everyone could, if people could stand up when they ask questions, that would be great. And just to let everyone know that the master students who are meeting in the class afterward will be in this room. But if people have questions for Dr. Is there a chance of turning the light? Can we turn the lights up a little bit? Please. Thank you. 
that's a wonderful question. That's a wonderful question. And let me just say, as a preamble to that, just like, which is that I was telling Rita before, but I'm actually a visiting professor at NYU this year, uh, and so I'm in town for the year, and I'm hanging out, playing a lot of basketball. Um, so um, if anybody wants to follow up with me also, I'm, I'm actually around this year. would love to, to intersect. Um, but I will say... <laughs> please. Um, but I will say that, you know, that I, I really do... I really do struggle with this because on one hand, I think that how does this change how I practice? How does, how does, it, how does it change how, how doctors should practice in a particular way, which might be a, a broader way of saying that? And, and on one hand, I think that, you know, l- let me go back to cultural competency because I, I'm not being totally critical of it. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's coming from a very, very important place, a very important recognition, which is that we have all these literatures about the ways that cultural bias Im- influences diagnosis and we really should train people about about different cultures and at the same time it's it's an awful lot to ask of somebody in a 10 minute office visit to understand i mean if you tell like somebody on the humanity side of my campus that somebody could be culturally competent and enact that in a 10 minute visit where they're doing other things or something like that it's actually a lot it's a lot in a way and so in a way I, i'm very sympathetic to doctors and the people who are making this argument and i think that part of the part of where our Part of where our energies need to go definitely need to be in terms of thinking about ways that I'll just say that as I practice, you know, I mean, I struggle with this on a, on a particular on a particular level because the stuff I write about is also stuff that I see um, on a clinical level. So my first book was about Prozac, and I remember I, I spent about three months critiquing this particular Prozac ad that said Sue's back to normal playing with her kids or something and I had this woman in a wedding ring playing basketball and I was like this is misogyny normal here means like you know that it's like the heteronormal and the mental illness normal are the same and stuff and at the end of three months a woman came in and said I saw this Prozac ad and this is me Sue is me Uh, and I've had this similar thing you know she's like I want to get back to playing with my kids I want to be normal again and I've had this similar thing you know working in the clinics and having angry African-American men who are psychotic come into my practice. And at those times, I think the malpractice answer, really the malpractice answer, is to say, well, sir or ma'am, what you're suffering from is a socially constructed illness, and what we need to do is change the culture, not treat the individual or something like that. You know, I mean, it may, that might be what I argue like when I'm writing or something like that, but at that moment, I think that what I need to be aware of is that there are different knowledges at play in that room. And part of it is the knowledge that I bring in as a physician, diagnostic knowledge, treatment knowledge, very, very important to, that, to helping that person. But at the, the, at the same time, there is this idea of humility, which I think is very important, to say that there are other forces going on that shape our conversation, that in a way, I also need to know that the meaning of the doctor-patient interaction, the meaning of the diagnosis itself, might carry very different connotations for different kinds of people. And so with the ad, for example, one answer for me could be, um, well, actually, depression is an illness that has a two-week duration of depressed mood, da-da-da-da. But I could also ask a question at that moment, and I could say, well, what does normal mean to you? What is it, what's your fantasy about Prozac? What is it that you, know, what is it that, that, that you think it might do? And in a way, to, to let cultural assumptions into the, in a validating way into the examination. I mean, that, that's part of it. But the other part is I also, um, you know, I get in trouble for saying this, but I think psychiatry, my profession, needs to be much more political and much more politically engaged. And, and I think that, in a way, just seeing this as just a clinical problem is itself a particular problem. And I think that psychiatry um, 
needs to be re-involved. I mean, it's, I'm kind of jealous of psychiatrists in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they were doing all this, like, wacky stuff. But they really were, I mean, social psychiatry was a real thing at, at the time, and it still is, in, obviously, in many different ways. But I think that, you know, we're, we're maybe starting to get there a little bit. But, I mean, questions of disparities, questions of race and culture are really things that psychiatry needs to be more engaged with at the, at the political level, too. So, Please. Um, thank you very much. Uh, looking at social Darwinism, and, uh, you know, there's... there's E.O. Wilson and Nance and Lincoln, it seems to me that it should be intuitive. After your talk, now I'm intuitive. <laughs> In terms of what, but it seems to me that, that we should look at ecology as a kind of an a priori approach to anyone. And that, I just finished reading a book called by George Price, The Price of Altruism, and it's, it's a, kind of brings you up to maybe the late 90s about where we are, but how do you look at what you're doing from the standpoint of social Darwinism? And can you say, but, well, let me just ask, what do you mean by ecology? Um, well, I mean the environment, just a natural understanding of where the person is, what their life is. Right. Not, not the atmosphere as much as the, the cultural ecology. Well, I'll, I'll say that there are two, for me, kind of heartening examples of where I think this your question is actually being done well. One I believe is at Columbia. I know there's one at Hopkins. There are kind of urban health programs right now that are understanding mental illness in the context of structural racism uh, or structural forces or something like that. So I give a talk at Hopkins and I've got some friends in public health there and they're doing all this stuff where as they're treating people, they're also in all these ways investing in health communities and other kinds of things. Now, it's on a very small scale or something like that, but what they're saying is, we can't just treat these, we actually need, so it, it, it's a liaison, at least at Hopkins, and I think, I think here, right, um, between psychiatry and public health in a way that understands illness in, in terms of social context and actually ties its outcome measures together. And I think that it's expensive, but honestly, these problems are incredibly expensive also. So I think that there are models out there for people who are addressing these, these particular questions in ways that I f actually find to be really encouraging because, because I think people, a lot of people, are coming to this realization that the structure and the environment are themselves important. The other part of this is there are colleagues of mine who I work with, who I'm writing grants with at Michigan, who actually, um, who actually, have written in opposition to the. And these are people from the what's called the Black Psychiatry Movement, um, who are or kind of the second generation of it, who are basically saying, well, actually, um, there are like there are cultural factors in African American culture that predispose people to have particular kinds of symptoms, and you actually have to study, you know, culture in a way to understand why it is that people might phrase their symptoms more in terms of delusions or something like that in a way. So they see this kind of overdiagnosis literature not as an exaggeration of a racist history, but actually also as a reflection of particular cultural mores. And I'm kind of sugarcoating our very intense debate about this issue, except to say that, um, that, you know, that I think that it is a debate. And so um, people like Arthur Whaley and other kind of people are, are basically writing that there are different ways that you actually need to know something about black culture to understand diagnosis. So there are there are two sides, I think, to this story. Please. Hi. Um, pardon me if this question sounds like I'm rambling a bit. I just um, rambled for an hour and a half, so. Yeah. Um, well, basically, like, I'm thinking in terms of, like, the whole, you know, idea of, like, you know, mental illness equals violence. You know, I remember this happened a lot after school shootings, like, with the Virginia Tech thing, you know, the guy who did it. 
a lot of people in the media were saying like, oh, he should have like gotten the help he needed first, you know, and ignoring the fact that in fact in his history he had been had psychological, you know, help forced on him in the form of like, the hospitalization that was involuntary. Anyway, um, what I was trying to think, I was I was thinking like how, you know, how at least overt racism is kind of crowned on our society, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, the integration battles in the 60s and the fact that the laws were actually changed. It was actually the government that stepped in. And kind of like, you know, if we change the laws so that people aren't, you know, being, you know, locked up basically because a psychiatrist said that they were mentally ill or because a psychiatrist said that they had the potential to be violent, you know, that would that, you know, really be the key to unlocking the stigma? Or do you think it's the other way around, that you have to unlock the stigma first, really, before the laws can be changed, or, you know, kind of chicken and the egg, but just... That's a, know, wonderful, it's a wonderful question. Thank you so much. That's a really, really thoughtful question. And I'll just say that I think it goes back to the introduction, in a way, which is that these are forces that keep morphing and keep rearticulating itself. And so culture tells you, and I'm maybe I'll just use culture with a capital C for the heck of it, and say culture tells you what you can and can't say in a particular way, and those, those come as a result of really hard work. Um, and then we say things, we re, you know, it morphs like the AIDS virus, and I really want to get the reference, actually, for that, because I think it's absolutely true. You see it in the aftermath of the Obama election, for example. You know, this is a moment of promise, and then the empire strikes back, but it doesn't do it in a way that's, um, you know, and, and I'm not talking about like if you're a Democrat or Republican, I'm actually saying that there are different ways to say things in, in different ways. And, and what I think we're showing with the schizophrenia literature is that it became unacceptable after the 1980s to say what those guys were saying in the 60s. It's shocking. It's shocking to us now. Participating in civil rights is causing black men to go crazy. You, you couldn't say that even in the 70s or 80s. And so this thing morphs, and so in a way, this rhetoric of schizophrenia becomes a way of a different way of saying something that's racialized without 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 race. And so I think history and looking back is a really important way. But I also think that this dynamic model of things keep changing is itself really really important. Do we have time for maybe one or one more? Sure, please. Um, hi, I, I've been thinking lately about the history of um, the concept of schizophrenia. Oh, sorry, I've been thinking lately about the Right. Um, and your book, which I just started reading, is fantastic. Made me think about, you know, the, the whiteness of that construct, yeah. and also about the about Moynihan's report of the Negro family and that idea of the black matriarch being this kind of pathological figure at the center of that. And I wonder if you had thought about that. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's, first, let's please be in touch because I, I have a lot to say about that, uh, and we're already we're already Facebook friends, I know. So, um, but uh, but but I will say. It's not a softball plant, I promise. Um, but, I, but I will say that, um, you know, it's interesting. That story I was telling about Olivia de Havilland in, in the 50s, it's like, why was it? And part of it, and I neglected to say this, was because schizophrenia was taken up. So schizophrenia is this term, and I kind of track this in a couple of chapters of the book. There were these two kind of waves that th- these ideas come out. Now, I, before I started this book, I thought schizophrenia, that's a term like hysteria or melancholia. It's something that, like, you know, whatever... Brutus the Third and Sixth Century Rome, said, it's something like that, you know. But actually, these are all like 20th century terms for the most part. It's it's really surprising how recent these terms are, um, Kreplinian and Blularian terms that only came to the United States in the very early 1900s. So in the, you know, 1896 or 1900, whatever, 
Dementia Precox comes over. Dementia Precox is the first term that talks about how insanity is the result of what, what was being argued at the time to be biological forces. And when that comes, it, it actually hits the United States in the middle of this total panic about um, immigrants. And it, and it was a very racialized discourse, but the black people were, at that time, Jews and Italians. Um, and Dementia Precox, as I kind of show in the book, it is taken up by eugenics people, basically, to argue in these incredibly racialized ways. But schizophrenia comes about 20 years later, uh, and it does follow also in, in Europe that way, and it literally means split mind, and it, at least initially it's taken up by psychoanalytic authors and by American culture that already has this idea about the split mind, but that idea is the um, conscious-unconscious neurotic divide that's been f furthered by, um, by psychoanalysis, right? And so... Um, in a way, it maps onto this already existing discussion of the neurotic housewife that had already played out. And so the schizophrenogenic mother is, is at least initially part of that. And then, you know, that, that's not totally true. There were urban sociologists like Ferris and Dunham and other people, you know, who were arguing about slum psychosis and other things in the 40s. But for the most part, this is taken up in mass culture by this already already racialized and gendered white women discourse. And, you know, it doesn't change really until the 60s. So. One more. Okay. So, um, so if you think about moving from Olivia to Hamlet to Tupac, yeah. and the schizophrenia has been appropriate as a term to be proud of or to be self-identified, is it perhaps time to create another term? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would I would say two things about that. On one hand, I have I, I have thought, and people have argued that the term itself, schizophrenia, it really has like all these. So people have argued for changing the term. Now, who gets to decide what that new term is, and is it going to be a term that's? A, it's, you know, I would bet that it would be either a very biological term. SR5. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> something like that, or it would be a responds to new brand name pharmaceutical disorder or something like that. So I'm, you know, nosology, I'll just say, is <laughs> complicated. Um, but, but I will say that at the very least we should be constantly aware of the ways in which psychiatric terms are being defined in cultural and medical contexts. And it's really a co-construction that's always in a particular kind of dialectic, really, with each other in the way of kind of forming meaning. And so maybe the new term... It wouldn't have the baggage, and then it would, you know, whatever. It would have develop something. So I'm of two minds. Of course, like my book, if we change the name, we'd be like, well, you know, what's that about or something. But um, but but I would say that, you know, I, I think that's true. But I also would say that at least the Tupac example for me also speaks to the importance of knowing exactly what I'm just saying, which is that this this term has a particular medical meaning, but it also has a, a cultural meaning that sometimes is at odds with the medical meaning, and that's really important for doctors and patients to know about. And so that, that's where I think that this history is important. So. Thank you so much.